Thank you so much for being a part of this. Let me pray with you before I talk and then... Father in heaven, there are so many things that are in my heart and mind right now. And I need your help. A conference on Native American awareness is a place where I feel strange. I ask, oh God, that you would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that I can ask or think for me, for this church, for the churches represented here, and for a, a handful of people who may be set so aflame by what they experience this weekend that they never turn back. They set their face like flint and will not rest until they see an awakening among Native American people in the Twin Cities and other regions. So, Father, I plead with you to do more than any human can do in this conference. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question that has been way weighing on me is why why did you say yes to this invitation to, to speak at this? Because there's so many reasons why I shouldn't be speaking here. Let me give you four reasons so that you know why what the reasons are not. Okay? And there's a counterpart what they are. I have four pairs, what it is and what it isn't. And that will lead me into a passage of Scripture first. Um, it isn't because I have been successful, either in my neighborhood, which is an eight-minute walk from here, or as a leader of this church in mobilizing us for fruitful ministry among Native peoples. It isn't. I, they didn't ask me because I'm good at this. Rather, it's longing. It's longing. And probably at times a weak longing. It goes in waves over me as my conscience comes to me and experiences I have in my neighborhood or in church or in the Word. So the first pair is not success, but longing that God move. God raise up from you a David Brainerd or a John Elliott or their female counterparts. Second pair. It isn't successfully extensive relationships. It isn't really well-cultivated relationships, but rather location. I'm here. I live in Phillips. It's called Ventura neighborhood now. They split it up. My little piece is Ventura, but it's Phillips to me, and I've been there for 30 years. How many Native Americans do I know? A little teeny handful. So 
It isn't because of any extensive web of relationships, but rather, well, you're here. You ought to be doing more by virtue of proximity implying accountability. Third pair of relationships um, or pair of reasons. It isn't because of creativity. Like at Bethlehem, we've not come up with the creative way to do ministry in this city among native peoples. We've not come up with the creative breakthrough way. But rather, uh, we have, I have, tonight I have convictions. I have convictions. Convictions about God having a people among Native Americans. And the last um, pair, actually it's, it's the same, is that, is that there's a history. It's not a pair, it's just a single word. There's a history. There's a history in our country, and I, I don't want to tell the sad story, I want to tell a few remarkably successful stories to increase your hope that it's possible. It's possible to see something extraordinary because it has happened before. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples near the end. So here's, here's my approach against that backdrop of inadequacy. Uh, I want to go to the scriptures and then I want to go to those stories. So the conviction that I have is based on scripture and the conviction is, is confirmed by two stories of two great missionaries to native peoples in this, in this country. In the text, I'm going to invite you to turn to with me. If you have a Bible or want to reach for one of those blue ones under the pew, is John chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 11 to 16, and I'm going to talk about just one verse, verse 16. But let's read a little bit of the context. And my reason for going to this text is because in the history of missions and in my life, few texts have been more annoying and goading and effective and powerful than verse 16 of John 10. So let me read it in context with you, starting at verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus is talking. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And here's the verse. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must. Bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. I have four 
observations that are in this text. And each one of these observations is designed to encourage you that God means to move among native peoples. He means to move and get a people for himself bigger than he already has. He means to do something more. That's what I hope these four things will encourage you to believe. Number one, Christ has a people besides those already converted. It's going to take that piece at a time. He has a people out there besides those already converted. Now, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In the original context, the fold was Israel. So I'm assembling a people from Israel, but I have other sheep that are not of this fold, outside Israel, meaning the Gentiles. If you think about the implications of that wording, it implies the doctrine of election. I have a people out there. I know my own, and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice, and they come. And there have always been people in the history of the church that have taken the biblical doctrine of election, say from Ephesians 1, and said, if you believe that God elects people, you won't do missions. There have always been people who've played off God's sovereign choice of a people against missions and say, they don't go together, they contradict each other, and they've always been wrong. Historically, they've been wrong, and biblically, they've been wrong. Let me, let me give you a story from Urbana 67, where my fiancé and I, to whom I've been married now for 40 years, we went to Urbana, you know, the big missions conference, the InterVarsity Mission, in 1967, and John Alexander was the president of InterVarsity in those days, and he had been a missionary for 20 years at least to Pakistan. And he said, because somebody raised this question about predestination and election, what about that? If this is a missions conference, what are those words doing in the Bible? And his response, I just remember it from all that many years ago. He said, when I first went to the mission field, I said, if I believed in predestination, I would never go to the mission field. And now, after 20 years among Muslim peoples, doing my best through the power of the Holy Spirit to awaken dead hearts, I say, unless I believe in predestination, I won't go to the mission field. That was his answer. Now, I didn't believe in it in those days. I was a rabid opponent of such things. And I sat there thinking, really? Hmm. Now, that's a story from Urbana. Here's a story from the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 18. He's in Corinth. Believe me, winning converts from pagan Corinth was every bit as hard as the Twin Cities and every people group in it. And he was very discouraged. And it was late at night. 
And Jesus came to him in a vision. And this is what he said to, to Paul in Acts 18, 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man shall attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. That's exactly the way Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Speak, I'll call them. Speak, I'll win them. I'll draw them. I have other sheep that are not of this fold outside the present believers. Outside Bethlehem Baptist Church. Outside your church. I have other people, other sheep. Second, second point from verse 16. These other sheep, by implication, and then confirmed elsewhere in John, are scattered. They're scattered. They're not in one little place. Like, oh, we found them here, North Minneapolis, or we found them here among responsive Filipinos, or we found them here. No, they are scattered among all the peoples, tribes, tongues, nations. Listen to this. This is John chapter 11. You remember this story? Caiaphas, the high priest, has been anointed with a spirit of prophecy, and he doesn't even believe in Jesus. And he said something out of his mouth that John, the writer, interprets for us. Let me read this to you and see how you relate it to chapter 10, verse 16. This is John 11, verse 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus died not for the in-group only, but to gather the children of God who are scattered. They're everywhere. They're among all the peoples of the world. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on earth. Revelation 5, 9. So when he died, he paid for the ingathering of a people among all the peoples of the world. World evangelization in John's mind is the ingathering of the sheep, the ingathering of the children of God. It is an en enormous encouragement to believe. There are 150 native languages in, in America that were here before we, we got here. I'm not talking about the ones that have been brought here by Europeans or by Asians. I'm just talking Native American peoples 
Some of them are dying. Some of these languages are dying. You are ransomed, and by your blood, you have purchased a people from every tongue. There are children of God. There are sheep. And they will come. They will come. Number three. From John 10, 16. The Lord has committed himself to bring these sheep home. He has committed himself to do it. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. I must bring them. I will bring them. Now, in the 1700s, when William Carey was being stirred by texts like this, he was surrounded by what is historically called hyper-Calvinists. A hyper-Calvinist is a person that believes that if that's true, God will bring them. Jesus says he will. I must bring them. Then we don't need to be involved. That's hyper-Calvinism. If God has committed himself to bring them, we can just stay home, pastor our churches. You need to go to India. God wants them saved, he'll get them saved. He's God. And you know as well as I do, that's not either logical or biblical because God uses means. And the main means that he uses is the gospel preached by human beings. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how shall they call upon him whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall anyone preach unless they be sent? That's biblical. God has a people and he uses means to gather his sheep and to gather his children. Listen to the way Jesus does it. He says in his prayer to the Father, I love this because he's praying for his disciples who are around him. They can hear him. And then in verse 20 he says he's not only praying for them, but for whom? Listen. This is John 17, 20. I do not pray for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Without the word of Jesus being spoken by other human beings, nobody will get saved. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So yes, scattered around are the children of God, and yes, I must bring them. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But I won't do it without you. I absolutely will not do it without my church. I won't do it without evangelists. I, don't, I won't do it without people laying down their lives for hard-to-reach peoples. 
The power of the Holy Spirit does not fly like a jet bomber in any other formation but behind the jet of the gospel. They fly in tandem. Where the gospel goes, God the Holy Spirit goes. And if the gospel ceases to be preached, the Holy Spirit lands. We are dependent totally on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will not save sinners without the witness of human beings. The loving, sacrificial, going witness. So Jesus says in John seventeen eighteen, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And that means go die like I did. At least be willing to die like I came to do. What an amazing role for you. I got an email today from one of my partners in ministry here, Kempton. And all he said was, praying, Matthew 9, 35 to 38, for tonight. And I texted back immediately, exactly the right text. Because that had been very much on my heart. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers for the harvest. It wouldn't take but a little handful of mighty anointed people to bring a great turnaround. Lastly, number four. They will come. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Last phrase. And they will heed my voice. Do you remember what happened when Paul went to Philippi? How do you, how do you start in a totally pagan city? Or a city that has zero awareness of Jesus Christ. And he goes out to a river. And he finds a little group of women praying. And he, I don't know how he did it, but they let him start talking. And it says in verse 14 of Acts 16, The Lord opened Lydia's and she was the first convert, the first member of the church. And it met in, in her place. They will heed. They will heed. The Lord opened her heart to give heed. That's why they will heed. The Lord opens the heart of people to give heed. Let me tell you a story of how high the price is. And how powerful this word is. And then I'm going to close with my, my two Native American stories. This is, this is a general missionary story that moves me about this particular text. Uh, Peter Cameron Scott is the founder of uh, Africa Inland Mission. A-I-M. I don't think it's called Africa Inland Mission anymore, but it was. And he went to Africa and uh, by himself and he got very sick with the fever as so many did and he came home broken in his health 
and to England, home to England, and was very discouraged. God encouraged him, raised him up, and this time, with tremendous joy, he went with his brother John back to Africa. And instead of having a great success, John, his brother, got the fever and he died. And uh, Peter Cameron Scott buried his brother by himself and dedicated himself to press on, which you would think now that the Lord watching this incredible devotion would, would bless him with fruit. And instead, his health breaks totally again. He goes home a, a broken and very discouraged man, just like perhaps some of you are here tonight. Totally discouraged. As his health begins to recover, he goes to Westminster Abbey. And you know probably who's buried there. A lot of people are buried there. And one of the most famous is David Livingstone, the missionary to Africa who was a previous generation and forged the way onto the inland. And he knelt down at this crypt and he read what's there. And you know what's there. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also. And when, when Peter Cameron Scott read those words, he rededicated himself for a third time now to go by himself. And he went, and this time, God moved. And today there are thousands of churches that are part of the network that he paid that price to establish. So I don't know where you are in that pilgrimage. How far along in your suffering, in your discouragements are you? When will the breakthrough come? When will the collective pain and, and discouragements become such that now is the time? And maybe this conference, called beginning, not because you're beginning, but because we need a, a powerful, beginning of something extraordinary. Now, let me just give you these two brief stories to show you what has happened in the past. And, and you probably know this better than I do, but a few of you may not know these stories, and I hope they will inspire you to go get biographies. I am so very encouraged by reading Christian biography, especially missionary biography. So the first person, let me just tell you a word about is John Elliot, E-L-I-O-T, one L, one T, John Eliot. Um, in uh, 1627 to 1640, 15,000 people emigrated to this country, mainly Puritans, filled with tremendous confidence that God was sending them there as part of the global extension of the reign of Christ. Did you know that the first seal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the seal has a Native American Indian on it and the words, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
That was the seal of the state of Massachusetts. In other words, the self-conscious understanding of the early Puritans was, yes, we're trying to get away from religious persecution, but we know this is uncharted territory and we want to see the kingdom of Christ extended. Now, they may have done most things wrong, but that idea of the extension of Christ's kingdom and the winning of people was a right idea, a good idea. One of those hope-filled Puritans was John Eliot. He crossed the Atlantic in 1631. He was 27 years old at the time. And the next year, he became the pastor of the First Church of Roxbury, Massachusetts, which today a, a part of Boston. In those days, it was a mile outside Boston. And then something amazing happened about 13 years later. According to Cotton Mather, who wrote the history of, of New England in his day up till that time, John Eliot discovered that there were 20 tribes, 20 different tribes of Indians right around the settlements there, just a few miles out into the wilderness, as it was called. And he knelt down and he said, Lord, if my theology is true, that you are sovereign and you mean to have a people among all the, all the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations, then you will triumph if somebody would be faithful and go, go to them. And he went. He was 40 years old. And he learned the Algonquin language. Some of the words in the Algonquin language have more letters than we have letters in the alphabet. It was an extraordinarily difficult language. He translated the entire Bible into Algonquin. He translated Baxter's call to, to the unconverted. He formed little schools and he died when he was 84 years old, going strong, and there were villages of Indian Christians and there were little schools of Indian Christians and there were churches pastored by Indian pastors in his day after 44 years of blood, sweat, and tears. And another story would have to be told of great tragedy as to whatever happened to these. This wasn't the only time this happened. Whatever happened? And, of course, we, we have a legacy of absolute horror that undid so much of what was done well. That's story number one. John Eliot said his motto was this, prayers and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will do anything. Prayers and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will do anything. And his life showed it. So I'm praying, is there a, is there a John Eliot out here who's 40 or 50? I'm 63. If I did what he did, I'd have still 21 years. I don't know if I'll live 21 years. And if God wants me to not do ministry the way I'm doing now and do something different, I want to say, God, please don't let me miss. If there's a new chapter for my life, and I just hope you'll say that with me. If there's a new chapter, you may be a computer programmer, a nurse, or a school teacher, or a carpenter, or a 
pastor or housewife. And God, this weekend, is going to say, give me the last quarter of your life or the last half in his case. And, and I will blow your mind with what I may be pleased to do. Last story, David Brainerd. David Brainerd, this is about 100 years later now in New England, 100 years later. Born 1718 in Connecticut, just as the Great Awakening was coming, and two waves of the Great Awakening, one in the late 30s, 1730s, and one in the 1740s. He lived through both of them. He saw God move in mighty ways in the churches of New England, and hundreds of people become converted and join the churches. He contracted tuberculosis and died at age 29 in 1747, October 9. A miracle happened in his life, he said, at age 21. Let me read it to you. I love to read stories of people's conversions. What is it like for people to get saved? People experience the saving power of God in so many different ways. And this is his. As I was walking in a dark, thick grove, unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and apprehension of my soul. It was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God, such as I never had before nor anything that I had the least remembrance of it, so that I stood still and wondered and admired. I had now no particular apprehension of any one person of the Trinity, either the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, but it appeared to be divine glory and splendor that I then beheld. And my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a glorious divine being. I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all forever and ever. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellency, the loveliness, the greatness and the other perfections of God that I was even swallowed up in him <coughs> at least to that degree that I had no thought as I remember at first about my own salvation or scarce that there was such a creature as I. Thus the Lord, I trust, brought me to a hearty desire to exalt him, to set him on the throne and to seek first his kingdom. That is principally and ultimately to aim at his honor and glory as the king and sovereign of the universe, which is the foundation of the religion of Jesus. I felt myself in a new world. That was July 12, 1739. He was 21 years old, and two years later, he entered Yale College to, to prepare for the ministry. Zero idea about Native American ministries at all in his head. He was going to be a pastor like his hero, Jonathan Edwards. At Yale, there was... At that particular moment, a lot of spiritual deadness. And he was so disappointed and angry that his professors seemed to him very unspiritual. So much so that he spoke some very ill-advised words out loud. 
and was expelled. He said that Chauncey Whittlesley, the tutor, has no more grace than a chair. And he said that he wondered why the rector, quote, did not drop down dead for fining students for their evangelical zeal. Now, here is the amazing thing. He was expelled from school and was never allowed to return. There was a law that you could not be the pastor of a congregational church if you did not have a degree from Yale, Harvard, or... Uh, I think there's one other place, but I forget what it what it was. But anyway, he was excluded from his dream. He tried over and over. He apologized. He got down on his face to say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't I'm I'm I made a mistake. I sinned. And they wouldn't let him in. That was one of the most wonderful things that's ever happened in the history of the world. <laughs> And I'm saying this because some of you are facing something like that right now. And you feel like it's the closed door, it's the last word, it's the no, it's the discouragement, it's the end of the line, which is what he felt. And little did he know what God was going to do. This is just like God. Just like God to do this. So... He's contacted by a Scottish mission. America's just colonies right now. And he's contacted by a Scottish mission to the Indians and asks him to consider would you consider Indian ministries in the New World? And he said, yes. And so he takes his place. Um, on, where's the date here? June 19, 1745, he made his first preaching tour to Cross Weeksome, New Jersey, and the Indians there. And God stunned him. 130 Native Americans turned to Jesus in a year. It was a whole village, and he moved them to Cranberry, May 1746. That was one of the strategies, good or ill, moved them and had their own town now. And then he became very, very sick with his tuberculosis. And he made one last visit to them in uh, March of 1747, and then he... He died in Jonathan Edwards' house, being cared for by his young, youngest daughter, Jerusha, at age 29. Now, why is David Brainerd probably the most influential missionary after the Apostle Paul in the history of the world? And the reason is because Jonathan Edwards edited compiled and published his diaries and his journals. After the Bible and maybe after William Carey's um, book about God's purpose to use means in 1793, this book has been the most influential book among missionaries in the last 200 
years. Why is that? Why did John Wesley say, let every preacher read carefully over the life of David Brainerd? Why did Henry Martin, the missionary to the Persians, say, perusing the life of David Brainerd, his soul was filled with a holy emulation of that extraordinary man. After deep consideration and fervent prayer, he was at length fixed in his resolution to imitate his example. Why did William Carey regard Edward's life of Brainerd as a sacred text? Why did Robert Morrison and Robert McChain in Scotland, John Mills in America, Frederick Schwartz in Germany, David Livingston in England, Andrew Murray in South Africa, Jim Elliott of modern America, look at Brainerd with a kind of awe and draw power from him for their own missions. Why did he have that effect from his journals and his diaries? And I think it's a cluster of things like this. Brainerd struggled almost continually with sickness. He was coughing up blood as he rode his horse through the wilderness to his little band of Indians most of his last years. He didn't know what to do about it. Medicine couldn't do anything in those days. They didn't know what that was. He, re he struggled almost continually with recurring depression. It's a pretty bleak book to read, his, his diaries. He was so down so often. He struggled with loneliness. He said, April uh, 1743, oh, I longed for some dear Christian who knew of my distress. He's out there all alone. He never married. He's totally alone. He's trying to make a, a dent in a very dangerous place and among a people. He struggled with immense external hardships. And in all of that, he was faithful. That's why he's so inspiring. Here's what he wrote. April 17, 1747. Oh, I longed to fill the remaining moments all for God. Though my body was so feeble and wearied with preaching and much private conversation, yet I wanted to sit up all night to do something for God. To God, the giver of these refreshments, be glory forever and ever. So I want to close by just publicly thanking God for David Brainerd like this. In 1986, uh, Tom and Julie Steller and I were doing a work in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he's buried near the old Jonathan Edwards Church. Edwards himself is buried in Princeton, but David Brainerd is buried near the church in Northampton, and we tracked down his grave. And we stood beside it. I remember, I think little Ruthie was with us as well. She's what, 27 or 8 now, I don't, can't remember, maybe 30. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we should, little, one, little, one little stellar, and... Uh, and we had held hands and prayed. Thanksgiving. Because of how inspiring he has been to thousands and to us. And written on that slab of stone. It's a flat slab on the ground. Not a stone like this, but like this. It says, sacred to the memory of the Reverend David Brainerd, 
a faithful and laborious missionary to the Stockbridge, Delaware, and Susquehanna tribes of Indians who died in this town October 10, 1747. 130 in one year. He'd been a Christian for eight years of his 29-year-old life, and only for four years of that had he been a missionary. And God had blessed for reasons that he sovereignly decides. And you may be, you may be one of those. So my prayer, and I'm going to pray it now as we make a transition. Father, my words feel to me right now so powerless in themselves. So I'm asking you to come with these stories and John 10:16 and do a, a supernatural sovereign work in us or anybody listening to or watching this. And I pray that you would raise up David Brainerd types and John Elliott types who say, through prayers and pains, by faith in Jesus, God accomplishes anything. Lord, do a, do a mighty work for the Native American people of the Twin Cities and beyond. Let this conference be a match put to the kindling on the hearts of some in this room, 40 years old, 50 years old, 63 years old. 18 years old, put a match to that kindling and let the flame never go out. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.